Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium podcast. Uh, obviously, I want to remind everybody, please visit thelegendarium.com to check out our wares, go to Patreon, Discord, etc., all that stuff. Okay, I wanted to get that out of the way fast uh, because today we're dipping back into our Author's Shelf series. Today, the book is Heroes Die by Matthew Stover, and it was selected by our first guest, if he swears as much as his characters do, then you should never, ever let him meet your mother. It's Scott Lynch. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Hi, Scott. Glad to have you. Um, and also joining us remotely, which is great because, as I understand it, he refuses to podcast with his pants on. It's Drew McCaffrey, the host of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Hi, Drew. Hi, Craig. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never been more grateful for a shoulders up portrait. So good on good on you, Drew. See, Craig's telling on himself because I've recorded episodes in his studio with him. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. With, uh, you know, it's a pants-free zone, obviously. <laughs> uh, all right. So, by the way, as we get started talking about Heroes Die uh, by Matt Stover, we're going to discuss this without spoilers up to a certain point, probably. I think at a certain point we'll have to talk about spoilers, but maybe for the first little while of this discussion, we can talk around that stuff. Uh, so if you haven't read the book, um, keep listening for a little while until we tell you to stop. And for heaven's sake, go read the book. I had a really good time with it. Um, so I'll give everybody a quick recap. If it's been a while since you've read it, if you've never read it before, this is uh, you know the one minute recap of, uh, of what are we reading? Heroes Die. <laughs> Ari Michelson is an actor, but in this future dystopian version of Earth, that means something very, very different than what you're thinking of. You see, Hari plays the character of Kane, the world's greatest assassin and adventurer. Kane is employed by a studio that sends him to Overworld, an alternate universe version of Earth. So think of Overworld as the place where all your favorite role-playing game tropes are quite real. Swords, sorcery, trolls, elves, all packed into a kingdom ruled by what else? a god king. Now, Kane has been going to Overworld for decades, uh, and through magically technological means, people back on Earth can plug directly into his mind and follow his adventures, watching him sneak and fight and kill as if they themselves were Kane. And this adventure promises to be the greatest of them all, because Kane has been tasked with overthrowing the seemingly omnipotent god king, and hey, maybe rescue his estranged wife while he's at it. You know, if it's convenient, whatever. So with the clock ticking, Kane has to maneuver through the dangers on Overworld to complete his mission, while at the same time maneuvering through the dangers of the dystopian caste system on Earth as well. And all in a book that constantly ratchets up its tension simply by way of its title, Heroes Die. All right, so the first question I like to ask whenever we do these author shelf uh, episodes is, Scott, why'd you choose this book? Um, well, okay, here's... Uh... Here's a part where you may have to uh, reach through the screen and physically slap me to cut me off. I mean, you know, we were supposed to, I think the brief was to choose a book that was of uh, generative importance to us when we were starting out, you know, something that was a major influence upon us. So, you know, I'll be, I'll be totally blunt and say that not only was this book a gigantic influence on me, I mean, it's a, it's a bit nepotistic. Um, Matt was a gigantic influence on me. He's more or less the closest thing I had to a mentor when I was uh, a, a neophyte, you know, trying to bring my first novel into anything resembling existence. 
Um, because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a, a feral writer found under a rock down by the river. I didn't come out of, uh, writers groups. I, I didn't, you know, share my work with a lot of people. I was, you know, very much just a weirdo in a cave on the side of a mountain scribbling on, on tree bark. And, um, Matt was a member of a, uh, a message board. Um, and I've told this story a million times in a million other places, but, uh, the internet has an average memory cycle of about two years. So hopefully this will be new to some of you kids out there. Um, two years, you're being off the internet. <laughs> back wow. in, yeah, back in the day. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure there's a certain proportion of your, uh, your listeners right now who are like, Scott Lynch, who the hell's that? Never heard of this guy. Hmm, doesn't, not many. doesn't even sound like a real author. Um, I suppose there might be a couple. Well, so I, I, I was a noisy, young, opinionated, I mean, as opposed to a noisy, middle-aged opinionated, but I mean, the, the nature of my opinionation has changed. I was a, a noisy, young, opinionated jackass with a bunch of other opinionated jackasses around the turn of the century. Um, and we had this this fairly cool message board where we would get together and mostly bitch about the state of science fiction and fantasy. Um, you know, so, so this is why we cast a jaded eye on the bitching uh, about science fiction and fantasy that goes on continuously, because this stuff has been going on forever. Generation after generation, the same arguments, the same, like, I've made some of the same arguments that I now roll my eyes about uh, when I see them online these days. And this was the glorious place we did it. And one of the wonderful things about this was we had a whole bunch of actual writers who, um, hung out with us and, uh, you know, treated us like actual human beings rather than poking us with sticks and saying, ah, ah get out of here. Um, they included uh, the late and uh, much missed Cage Baker, um, Matthew Woodring Stover, uh, Neil Asher and uh, R. Scott Baker. Um, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a person or two. Um, so, you know, we, we had uh, friendly access to the thoughts of a bunch of working writers and Matt was the one who was, I guess, the most instrumental in getting me off my ass and actually getting my first novel finished. I mean, I, I, I can't remember if it was a chicken or an egg thing. If I read um, Heroes Die, uh, probably based on the strength of a review that I found online in like 1998 or 99, and then hunted this place down, if I was on this place and somebody said, you have to read Heroes Die to be in the club, kid. Um, but I, I, I did, um, and, you know, uh, friendship and, and, uh, interchange developed from there. Um, so this, this novel was, uh, integral, <laughs> I speak English. Um, this novel was, um, essential to, because I'm not going to try to pronounce integral again. I, I know how to spell it. Um, but it's one of those, <laughs> just assume that I pronounced it right. Um, to to the development of my aesthetic taste as a fantasy reader and to the development of of my uh, taste as a writer. I mean, it it, uh, it imparted a certain sense of sense of urgency to what I was trying to do with what eventually became the lies of Locke Lamora. You know, it was uh, one of those things that you look at and you you snap your fingers and you say, "There, right there, that guy is doing some of the stuff that I want to do." You know, you, you see it quickened in front of you and it's no longer theoretical. Um, and there were, there were a whole bunch of things that I bumped into around that time, you know, 1998 to about 2002 that all went into the, the baking of what would eventually become lies. But this was one of the biggest. And so you, you mentioned, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back to something you said, and then we, we can continue on. But you said that, um, you guys were all getting together and, uh, <clears throat> complaining about the state of sci-fi and fantasy at the time. What was it about this book that, 
that jumped out, you know, in broad strokes. We're going to get into some spe- specific stuff later, but you said there were little things that jumped out at you and said, hey, I, you know, I want to include that. I want to try something like that for my book. What what kind of things are we talking about there? Well, you know, looking backward from from 2022, I mean, the, the, the thing that it helps to remember is that all criticism, all of our complaining, all of the stuff that we, we, we love to do, all the yammering back and forth about this and that, um, you know, it, it moves in cycles. It, it moves in, in development cycles and it moves in generational cycles. Um, there are always new readers coming into fantasy and science fiction. There are always new producers actually releasing books. There are always new theorists, you know, merrily theorizing. Um, there are always people kind of uh, synthesizing the history of the genre, and there are always people completely ignorant of the history of the genre who are, are talking about it at, at the top of their voices nonetheless. I feel um, like I'm being subtweeted right now. Ah, no. no, you're not the guy I'm thinking of. Um, <laughs> it's but, uh, no, we, we were very much a part of this. And, and you know, the, the thing is, is, is that we felt um, collectively just a general sense, whether it was justified or not, because the thing is, part of it was not justified. Um, some, sometimes it's not that fantasy and science fiction are in a doldrums or, you know, an, an aesthetic, uh, dump from which it shall not recover. Sometimes you just haven't read, uh, widely or broadly enough to spot all the, the, the stuff that's out there that would answer your grievances, that would, you know, assuage your, 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 your troubles and would appeal to what you think you want out of the genre. Um, you know, I mean, I was, I, I was reading voraciously back in those days. I mean, I try to read a great deal these days, but back then I was, you know, blasting through in, in the years before I read, uh, before I, I, I finished lies, I was reading more than a hundred books a year, just novel, 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 novel. I was on a, you know, I was on a brain stuffing expedition, uh, reading Hugo winners, world fantasy winners, um, other award winners, um, and anything I can get my hands on, um, and uh, e- even so, you know, I still had a very shallow understanding of the breadth and depth of the field. And so what it was about uh, Matt's work was, was it, it spoke to us in what we thought was the, uh, the more anodyne nature of most of the mainstream fantasy that was available at the time. And like, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm on a podcast that is largely dedicated to Wheel of Time and Lord of the Rings studies. So don't take this the wrong way. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm much more reconciled to the, the place of those things, uh, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, the pantheon of fantasy literature um, and in, in pop culture in general than I was when I was, you know, friggin' 20. Um, but at the time, I mean, it, it seemed like fantasy was just in a very hands-off, sanitized sort of, uh, you know, uh, something akin to to the uh the 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 aesthetic revolt of the um the uh, mid-century american noir fantasy writers um you know versus the uh the more old-fashioned uh, english you know garden party murder uh, type mystery writers um i i forget if it was if i, I think it might have been dashiel hammett but one of them said something like you know our our job is to Prime murder out of the hands of the aristocrats and take it out of the gardens and out of the rooming houses and put it back on the streets and back alleys where it belongs. Um, and you know, we in our I- immense self-regard thought that we were the vanguard of you know something like that. We wanted grittier fantasy. We wanted fantasy where people said, "Pardon my French." Fuck. We wanted fantasy where there was blood on the walls, and um, 
so, you know, along comes Matthew Woodring Stover, who supplies literally everything that we wanted. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I don't, yeah, you know, so, so I don't know. It's, it's a real chicken or egg question. It was just, there, there was something in the air that I was kind of a part of a little grievance society, you know, toasting ourselves on how cool we were and how sad everybody else was. And all of a sudden here's this novel that is exactly what we're looking for. Um, yeah. so of course it, it landed on us all like a bomb and we, we loved it. And, you know, I, 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 I love it to this day. So it was, it was directly formative to so much. And um, I, you know, I love that. I, I like, I like variety, right? Spice of life and all that stuff. But you, so you're talking about the wheel of time and Lord of the Rings and, you know, a lot of like Sanderson stuff that we read, the word you used was anodyne. And I think that's perfect. This is something that, you know, these are things that are not likely to cause great offense to a great number of people. But then you have uh, books like this or, you know, like yours or like many others that it's got a strong flavor, you know, and like any dish, some people are going to like the flavor, others won't. But like, but it's, this is a book, Heroes Die is a book that goes for it, right? Um Let's say who's uh, who am I think? Oh, Brent Weeks, uh, you know, like he makes decisions that a lot of people absolutely hate and other people love. Um, and I whether you love his books or hate his books, at least he goes for it. I love that about him. You know, so so I, I think I can see what you're saying. There's there's something to that. Uh, but let me kick it over to Drew real quick, uh, because it, Drew, let me just peel back the curtain for people a little bit. <laughs> Uh, and tell them that I didn't really give Drew much of a choice, okay? Drew is not technically a host of the Legendarium podcast, although at this point you might as well be. Um, <laughs> does, does Drew have like an ankle bracelet with a, with a little explosive <laughs> charge in it? Is is that what my, my Patreon is funding? Kind of. Kind yeah, of. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Continue. <laughs> no, Drew, you've been bugging me about this book literally since I met you. I met you at JordanCon 2019, 19, 18, yep. whatever it was. And I think it was that weekend you were like, have you read Heroes Die? Yeah. Like, ah, I never even heard of it. Um, and you bugged me about it for three years straight and you finally got me to read it or somebody did. You know, it, it takes the likes of Scott Lynch to get me to do what you <laughs> want. Um, but tell me your history with it um, briefly. And, you know, like, why is it that you kept hammering away at, at this book and telling me to read it? Yeah. So my history with it actually kind of goes back before I even read the book because I was a big Star Wars fan. I was a big Star Wars mm. Expanded Universe fan. And of course, Matt Stover was one of the most highly regarded uh, EU writers. And I was at the time I was pretty disconnected from any online communities, but I read all the books and the two that stood out the most to me were both written by Stover the Revenge of the Sith novelization and Traitor from the New Jedi Order series. And I was like, you know, this guy is incredible. I He writes like nobody else in Star Wars. And he writes like nobody else at the time that I had read in fantasy. And, you know, because I was young, you know, I, I was reading these books when I was like 12, 13, 14 years old. And, and I was like, you know, I got to read more from him. And I look it up and Heroes Die is on the list, and it was a little while before I read it. I think it was probably around 2013. Um, I had just graduated college, and I finally picked it up and had no idea what I was getting into. But ever since then, I have been on what amounts to a crusade online to get more awareness for this book. I would be 
I would be lying if I said it wasn't top of my mind when I started my own podcast specifically so we could review the acts of Cain and get that name out there, get Stover's name out there because it, it blows my mind how little regard the fantasy fandom community has for his name, considering how good a writer he is. Fair enough. Yeah. I, okay. So yeah, I'd say he's pretty good. Having read the book now, <laughs> he's all right. <laughs> Fine, whatever. Um, but let's, so let's start digging into some specifics of what makes this book so good. Okay. So, and, and now I'm stepping away from kind of the, the context. We might get back into this. You know, the fact that this was published in 98 is a thing uh, that we can talk about. Um, but just digging into the text itself, um, the thing that jumped out to me after the first couple hundred pages were the POV shifts. And there's a couple of things I want to run past you guys. Uh, and then, Scott, I'll get your take on this. Um, I don't know because I'm not sitting in all these creative writing classes that people are teaching or taking. But I get the suspicion. I, I get the feeling that nowadays it's like, look, your POV has to be tied to a specific character. No more omniscient narrator. Um, you know, no, none of that kind of mysterious who, where am I getting this information? It's like, you know, you're following Harry Potter every chapter. And if Harry knows it, you know it. If he doesn't, you don't, you know, that sort of thing. With this one, it toys around not only with um, shifting from third person to first person, uh, it, but it also brings in omniscient narrator. Uh, it, like it, it just, it does, it breaks what I feel like are rules today with POV. Uh, and yet it took me a while to figure it out because he was doing it so smoothly that it never felt jarring or forced, um, in a way that, that like disrupted my reading. Yeah. Scott, what do you think of all the, the POV stuff here? Well, the, uh, you know, the, the, the ultimate use of that is, uh, that, you know, if, if you have, like I'm, I'm a, I, I've seen um, an awful lot of Martin Scorsese films. You know, Go Figure, um, Goodfellas, Casino, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the thing is that, like, if you, if you've, have you guys seen Goodfellas? Well, a long time ago. Okay, yeah. and uh, have you seen Casino? Casino is one of my favorites. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Drew, I, I'm sorry. Casino came out in 1995, so there may be a little bit of yeah, a spoiler here. Don't worry um, about it. <laughs> so the, the thing is, is, is that each of the, the, a really interesting artistic touch about Goodfellas and Casino, um, and I will return to books eventually. I absolutely promise, you know, Grandpa Simpson is not going to wander too far, um, from the subject <laughs> at hand, um, is, is that there, e each movie contains one absolutely majestic breaking of the fourth wall uh, in which the characters on screen, you know, snap out of being characters on screen and in some fashion um, address or interact with the audience. Um, you know, Goodfellas is ostensibly narrated by Henry Hill, you know, talking about, you know, all, you know, all my life I wanted to be a gangster and here was the dream and here was the wonderful stuff we did. And then here's how things went wrong. And then here's how things went really wrong. And it ends with, you know, him um, in a courtroom uh, testifying against his, you know, mob comrades before he goes into the witness protection program. And at the end of this courtroom scene, he turns directly to the audience and he says, and all the cool stuff we did and all the power I had and all of the privileges I enjoyed. Now it's, it's all over. It's all done. 
the world was ours. It was our oyster and we screwed it up and I have to go into hiding now. And it cuts to him, you know, in a bathrobe, picking up his newspaper in a completely nondescript suburban house. And he, you know, he looks at the, the audience one last time and he says, I, I get to live the rest of my life as a schnook. Um, the fourth wall breach at the end of Casino is even more subtle, but it's even more daring um, because uh, Casino has multiple POV uh, narration. You've got Joe Pesci's narration and you've got Robert De Niro's narration. You've got various characters narrating their version of the truth of their gangster life in Las Vegas. And Joe Pesci's character has pissed off his bosses uh, too often. He's, he's pushed it too far. So at the end of the movie, uh, he gets removed. Uh, he, uh, the, the character and his, his brother, who are lightly fictionalized versions of, uh, of real gangsters. Um, so they're, they're in a cornfield in the middle of nowhere, and they're, 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 they think they're at a legitimate meeting to try and settle some grievances and decide who's going to keep making money in Las Vegas um, you know, from then on. And Joe Pesci is narrating it in this really bored, yada, yada. Yeah, I know the score. I know the deal. It's it's always like this with the bosses. It's always about the money. And right in the middle of one of his sentences, one of the other gangsters pulls out a baseball bat and hits him in the back. And his fourth person narration actually goes, ah! as the character on screen falls over. He is interrupted in the middle of talking to the audience by another character within the movie. And it's one of those moments that, like, if you, you blink, you miss it. But if you think about it, you go, oh, my God, that was really fucking cool. I'm sorry. Forgive Pardon me. That won't happen again. You can bleep that if you want. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the entire movie's POV structure was leading up to that one audacious moment of high artistry. And Matt's use of it is very similar to that. Um, I mean, he uses POV... Um, to signify, uh, you know, the, the shift between, you know, Kane's quote unquote actual life and Kane's interior narration of his adventure style, um, you know, uh, travels throughout Ankana, throughout Overworld. Um, and then at the, at the very end of the novel, and I'm sorry, we're, we're treading into spoiler territory. God, I'm screwing it up already with the, with the first lengthy <laughs> you, monologue. You've got to talk about go this scene, though. Well, okay, so we're, 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 we're... They got leaving. 20 minutes. They got 20 minutes of, of spoiler-free podcast. Here we go. Okay, yeah, you, you should have started this book 20 minutes ago, and you should be finishing it now. You should have done the homework, <laughs> okay? You've had that much of a warning. Um, so you, you, you come to the scene at the, end of, at the, at the climax of the book, um, you know, where, where he's, he's fighting to give palace real time and, um, you know, he's still in, he's, you see him out of it, but then you see him in first person and he actually addresses the audience, the human audience on earth for the first time, but he's also addressing the readers the of the book with the, you know, with the ultimate thematic point. Like, do you see this? Are you getting what you wanted? Are you not entertained? Like, I mean, this book predates uh, the movie Gladiator by, you know, a couple of years, but it's, it's, it's the exact same thing. You know, look at the guy bleeding at my feet. Are you happy with this? Are you not entertained? Is this not what you wanted? Think about it. And it, it, it so it, it, it not only, um, you know, creates a separation on the page between uh, whether or not we're in Kane's head, but it allows Matt to build up to that one absolutely glorious moment of, you know, do you get it yet? Do you get it? This isn't about abstract people who don't exist. This isn't about a fantasy world. This is about all of us, all of us everywhere and the things that we do with our desires and our entertainment and how we treat the world around us and the people in it. Mm. 
There was another moment uh, toward the beginning of the book where you, I, w- I was torn as I was reading this with how far to take this concept, but I could almost feel editors <laughs> breathing down the necks of writers because there's a <laughs> there's a moment when uh, he's talking to, I think it's Kohlberg, right? The, the guy who oversees his adventures and Kohlberg is reminding him, hey, uh, you know, it, it's been a day. You haven't killed anybody yet. Uh, we, you know, we need an action scene. We need this. We need that. Um, and I, I, I don't know where uh, Stover was in his career at this point, but I could almost feel like editors breathing down his neck. It's like, how dare you get to chapter three without a beheading? You know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I, I detected possibly wrongly is some you know maybe some frustration with that where it's like look can i just tell a story no you got to chop people's heads off yeah we, uh, we, we need an action beat it's been five minutes without a massacre he's, he's got to do something yeah and i mean that's but that it, it's part of storytelling right but um but definitely there's kind of the, what you were talking about earlier scott with um you know how uh fantasy and sci-fi had uh if i'm interpreting what you were saying had kind of gotten into a rut um in some ways um and so but that but those ruts get really well established you know okay inciting incident okay now establish your character okay now explore the world okay now another inciting incident whatever um so yeah i don't know i just i felt like a little bit of a a little fourth wall breaking potentially in that way as well uh but as the book goes on obviously it um it gets stronger with what you're saying where it's you know it's talking to the audience the the bloodlust this was something that was huge back in the 90s uh was the um you know violence in media uh or the idea that we're amusing ourselves to death as a society oh god yeah you know rob liefeld and and uh you know his his branch of image comics with uh you know uh kill blaster or blaster kill or you know blood blast kill (laughs) Kill Blast Blood, the Assassin. Um, and, you know, and and I'm I obviously, you know, I'm a comic book fan. I'm a fantasy fan. I'm you know, I'm I'm a Gru fan. You know, I I I, I enjoy the, the the Grand Guignol. I enjoy the Blood on the Wall. I, you know, an awful lot of people get stabbed in my books, but um, you know, I, I still have an awful lot of thoughts about it. I mean, you know, I, I think yeah. I mean, if if you'll permit me a moment or two, since I've said so very little thus far. <laughs> Um, just to, to kind of, uh, you know, unpack some of what I've said so far, um, just to kind of, uh, prevent people at home from, from fuming because of the, you know, the perception that I've, I've, you know, said nasty things about, you know, works that they like. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm a, I'm a major adherent of, you know, there, there's a time and a place, you know, I, I like, I, I fully understand that, you know, an episode of My Little Pony is magic, uh, Friendship is Magic, is, is like not a place for eviscerations and, you know, <laughs> for Although equestria, I like, motherfuckers. Yeah, if, if, if I mean, sure. The helm, if you were writing My Little Pony, it would probably turn out pretty differently. <laughs> well, and, and I'm sure there's, there's an awful lot of fanfic like that. And, uh, you know, uh, but, but, you know, for, for what actually makes it to the screen or, you know, the, uh, the officially licensed products, like you understand that there are constraints upon the content and there are things that you can't do. Um, and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, everything should be allowed to be its own thing. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not just a general advocate of, uh, you know, yeah, add more swearing, add more blood. Let's go crazy. I mean, you, 
you know, you, you don't improve the Lord of the Rings, you know, by adding a scene where the elves are pissing against a wall. You know, you, you, you don't, uh, at least not in my book. I mean, I'm sure once again, Hey, look on, look on AO3, find that fanfic. Um, but you know, it, it, it has its own tone. It has its own aesthetic. It, you know, it, 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 it is, um, what it should be within the bounds of, of what it was made to be. And, uh, you know, uh, there's, you're, you're not making it more realistic. You're not making it, uh, you're, you're not improving it. If you, if you start artificially adding, um, the, the grit and, you know, quote unquote realism, because there's a, there's a, there's a mature and open-eyed way to add grit. And there's a, an incredibly childish way to add grit. Um, and, uh, you know, not, not everything needs to be the exact same flavor of, you know, uh, exploding viscera splattering all over the place after every fight. I mean, that, that, you know, that's part of the power of, um, uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, I, I mean, especially in, especially in the books and especially in the, the early parts of, uh, what was televised is that this is, uh, you know, George's entire thesis, um, you know, kind of summed up by, um, uh, by the uh, uh, the the monologue from uh, the king in one of the early episodes, you know, no one ever tells you when you set out to be a knight, um, when you set out to put your armor on and ride out to battle. You know, no one ever tells you about the screaming and the bleeding and the men dying of infections and the men shitting themselves afterwards. You know, we we leave that part out of the songs, and that like that's the thesis statement of the entire sequence of novels. Um, and that was definitely a part of that that whole aesthetic that, that sense of an aesthetic movement that we had, you know, way back when when we all you know fell head over heels for Heroes Die. Um, but like I said, it's not necessarily fair to say that uh, you know fantasy was definitely in a doldrum or a decline or whatever, because fantasy has always been in a doldrum or a decline or whatever, according to whoever is ranting at any given time. I mean, go, go read Michael Moorcock's uh, rantings from the 1970s, and you'll find that, you know, he thought fantasy and science fiction had jumped the ship, you know, years before I was born. Um, you know, he had some points and he had some, some, some stuff that I would absolutely disagree with him on. Um, but there was, you know, scattered all across the, 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 the body of literature, uh, the body of science fiction and fantasy, um, you know, there, there was, there was absolutely stuff that could never be categorized as anodyne or stuff that could only be treated as anodyne if you analyzed it from too shallow and too, um, careless a perspective. I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, the, the good stuff that we were looking for was always out there to be found, but there was just a certain perception that what was, what was in commercial primacy at the time was a little bit on the smoothed edges side of things, you know? Sure. No, I think that's absolutely fair. So, okay. So with that clarification out of the way, I I hope that I've explained that. No, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't hate, uh, the wheel of time. I don't hate Lord of the Rings. Oh God, no. I mean, I, I I read at least fellowship every single year in the autumn. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge Tolkien appreciator. Um, Around say September 22nd, maybe. (laughs) I'm I'm not entirely that much of a nerd, but it's just that, you know, um, (laughs) It, it, it feels to me like an autumn book to kick off an autumn series, so I always read it in the autumn. Um, 
just that much of a nerd. And and interestingly enough, um, September twenty second is my wife's birthday, and uh, oh, nice. she's she she's been a Lord of the Rings appreciator for longer than I have. In fact, uh, I mean, she was she was born in seventy one at the height of a certain um, Lord of the Rings influence on hippiedom. Uh, she was almost christened uh, Peregrine. Oh, she she wow. almost became a Pippin. Amazing, um, amazing. So yeah, she is, but she she shares a birthday with uh, with uh, Frodo and with Bilbo. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, I'm sorry, I'm 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 wandering far afield from 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 what we're trying to talk about. But I, I just wanted know, to we... say that like that I, I wanted to add some context for some of the things that I've been saying and some of the some of the deeper understanding that comes when you read a few more books and you're no longer you know twenty. Well, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, there are two very different types of uh, understanding you're going to get, you know, contextual and, you know, and your own, I guess your own context, historical yeah. and your own. Like I, Sorry, I was going to say, uh, I, I think it's really important how Scott pointed out, you know, it's the commercial perception uh, that he, and, and I think this is part of why a book like Heroes Die is so relatively unknown in the larger fantasy fandom. It wasn't until sort of that next maybe half generation of writers, which Scott, you were a part of, uh, that the the darker, grittier fantasy yes, became yes, very, commercially successful. Very astute, Drew. Yes. Um, Matt was a couple years ahead of, in the unhappy position of, of being a couple years ahead of his time in terms of pop culture. Um, yeah. because there, th- th- this became, a, you know, a, a distinct impression of a movement half a dozen years later. And, you know, if, if Heroes Die had been released in 2006, then it would have been, you know, just part of a wave. Yeah. Um, but it, it, this is this is one of those things where, like, like you know, we, we talked about, you know, having read him. I mean, you know, I, I agree, you know, calling Matt underrated feels, um, you know, odd because he's not underrated by anyone who appreciates him. Right. You know, he's, he's like one of those completely impeccable character actors who never turns in a bad performance, who makes every movie they're in some kind of gem. Like, you know, these, these artists are not underrated by anyone who knows what they are. They just maybe haven't received the mansions and the pools that they deserve as a result of, of, you know, how good they are. Yeah. And that's absolutely where Matt was. And, and still is, um, you know, uh, basically undeservedly ignored for being ridiculously awesome. And yeah, I mean, I'm partisan. Like I said, this is nepotistic. Um, you know, he's a mentor and a friend and I love his work, but, you know, I loved his work before I knew the guy. And the thing about Matt is, you know, you talked about his Star Wars stuff. Um, the, 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 the single biggest factor about Matt Stover as a writer is that he is incapable of half-assing anything. It doesn't matter <laughs> what he's doing. Um, I mean, he's worked on projects that I have zero interest in. He, I mean, he's, he's written novelizations for his, like, I don't play the God of War games. You know, I know mm-hmm. they exist. Um, I play an awful lot of video and computer games, but I've just never gotten around to those um, because, you know, I don't have 48 hours in a day. Um, but he wrote a God of War tie-in and it was, it was amazing. Um, I had no interest. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge old school Star Wars fan. I had no interest whatsoever in the new Jedi Order. That was kind of where I checked out from the EU. Mm-hmm. Like I, starting with Vector Prime and, and the, the first death of Chewbacca, I just, I, I, and, and the Yuuzhan Vong and so on and so forth, I just stopped caring. And Traitor was like number, what, 23 or 25? I believe it's 13 of 19. 
Okay, yeah, in, in in a sequence of you know what eventually became like six hundred novels. Um, yeah, and I I wasn't I wasn't going to read that. I mean, there there were authors in there whose whose work appalled me, and I had no interest in following this entire series. But I read Traitor, you know, as an island unto itself, and and loved it. Um, I I read his uh, Revenge of the Sith novelization, which is you know which is absolutely fascinating and uh, and and brilliant. Um, Fun and. My favorite Fun fact for you guys: If anybody wants to make Drew cry on command, read the <laughs> prologue to *Revenge of the Sith*, and he will cry every time. Every time. If you make <laughs> me read it out loud, I cannot make it through it without crying. There are heroes on both sides. It's, it's <laughs> those final. Do it. Don't do it, Drew. It's the don't final lines where where he don't says, you know, um, but the the adults are wrong and the younglings are right. Yeah, yes, this may yes. be the end of the Age of Heroes, but it has yes. saved its best for last. Oh so, gosh. so Stover. Like, the, <laughs> rarely has a more Stover line been written. It, it is totally awesome. Um, Sorry, such I a flair for the dramatic. Yeah. Also, I, uh, the, the, you know, a, a novel that stands alone even better than um, his, his other Star Wars stuff is um, Shatterpoint. Um, yeah. his, his Clone Wars novel featuring Mace Windu, and it's, it's essentially... Um, heart, heart, yeah, heart of darkness or apocalypse now with Jedi, and it's amazing. And you, it's it's a total standalone. If you know what Jedi are, you like Star Wars a little bit, you know who Mace Windu is. It's completely awesome. It is ridiculous. It it should it should be in its ninety ninth printing at the moment. It it should, it should be heralded along with everything else he does. And the thing you you alluded to is that when you have someone who's a couple years ahead of their time. Um, you know, you struggle to market them. You struggle to signal to the readership uh, who actually buys books off of shelves. What is this thing? What does it mean? What does it contain? Um, and Matt, for the okay, despite being a freakishly awesome writer, Matt has never had the best cover luck. No, in terms, I was in terms about of to say. <laughs> in terms of trade dress, in terms of cover art. I mean, he's occasionally gotten some really stylish stuff, like like Blade of Taishel yeah, looks really good. Blade the later the later Kane books look really good. They have that, um, you know, but they have an abstract and stylized look mm -hmm. rather than a we have no idea what art we should be putting on this cover. You know, and Heroes Die does not have the best. It's it's got a very nineteen ninety eight cover. Can, um, can, can we just pause there? For, I, I, I was sitting here writing out my notes for this episode. Like, what are we going to talk about? And I couldn't figure out where to put in. This is the worst cover. But it's like all the covers at that point were terrible. Like you said, this is 1998. Yeah, and uh, I, but I, I definitely, I before we started our conversation, because I was reading this on Kindle, um, and I got on Amazon and ordered a used copy of the hardcover version, because I was like, I have to have this OG cover as the perfect example of don't mm -hmm. judge the book by this. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We've, yeah, been, so we've, been, we've been having this argument with people since 2000 or so. It's like, please read this and don't judge it by the cover. I beg yeah. you, I beg you, I beg you. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, and when, when I say cover luck, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious and it's, it's not, it's, it's not Matt's fault. Like this is one aspect of the lottery that most writers just never have any control over whatsoever. Um, you know, some writers get a cover that is that is instantly iconic and recognizable, and that art doesn't get changed for 40 years. And some people end up with a cover that says, we don't know what this is. And that's not a huge vote of confidence to someone who's like, you know, prowling the aisles at Barnes and Noble. 
Yeah, um, I was going to say, how many different covers have there been for reprints of Lies? Yeah, they they um, it, they, they they've gone through a couple different phases because uh, you know, first off, the, the very first one um, came from uh, England and was was in line with the British editorial sensibilities of 2006, which was don't explicitly allude to the fact that this is a fantasy novel. Imply that it is some sort of historical stabby fantasy, like sucker people in, you know, let, let, let them think that it's something that it maybe isn't until they're in too far to pull out. Um, but like, you know, no, no black leather, no, no black leather, no studded armor, no swords, no dragons, you know, even though like, that's like, that's what I wanted. I wanted the classic, like you, you sell a, a fantasy novel, you know, in, in 2005, 2006, you assume you're going to get like, yeah, Michael Wheatland cover with like knives and a dude with a cloak and the cloak is going to be flowing in the wind. It's going to be freaking awesome. It's going to be totally metal. And they're like, this needs to be respectable for the people <laughs> who are reading it on the tube so that the people around them don't know that they're reading fantasy. Um, and then, you know, you had a very colorful U S cover that got a very mixed reactions. And then you had the, uh, the Benjamin Carey illustrations, you know, the, the, the dude crouching on a pillar, um, yeah. you know, next to a river that, that, uh, yeah, and then yes, that's the, the next generation after that. Um, but basically after, uh, Brajolon, uh, commissioned Ben Carey to do those illustrations, they basically just took the world over and everyone else said, yeah, that's it. We're not going to get any better. Let's just, let's license that forever. And so now that has been basically the trade dress of the series, but sorry, stepping back to Matt, yeah. um, <laughs> heroes die was not the first time Matt got screwed on his cover because Matt's, oh, um, the picked. yeah, yeah. Matt's first sequence, um, <laughs> starting with the novel called, uh, iron dawn, and its sequel, Jericho Moon. Um, absolutely great stuff. You know, sword and sorcery, uh, sword and, and sorcery and sandals uh, fantasy set around, uh, you know, a few years after the, the fall of Troy. Um, you know, it, it's set around the Mediterranean basin in Tyre and, uh, you know, that, that, that whole area. Um, and, and Matt's, kind of Matt's, Matt's idea was to treat the Trojan War as this epical generation defining event, like the Vietnam war, something that, you know, literally everybody you ran into for the next 30 years, if they'd been there, they knew, uh, and they knew everyone else who'd been there and, you know, all the, the, the madness and the death and the, you know, the, the haunt that it had left uh, upon their lives. Um, and they're, they're great. I mean, Iron Dawn is, is a, is a really, really good debut novel. You can see that it's a little unpolished by his later standards, but it still goes so hard and it's so good. And then in, in typical Matt fashion, um, Jericho Moon is the Empire Strikes Back with fireworks and candy. Um, in the same way that like it, Heroes Die is great, but Blade of Taishal is a molten explosion of greatness com- that you will not believe. Like it's, it's just it, that each of these is the setup uh, in a one, two punch. Um, and no matter how good the first novels are, the, the, the second books are the knockout. Um, and the, the problem is, and I mean, I remember talking about this with him back in the day is that the cover art they gave these books, the romance covers. Well, yeah, that, that's, that's the thing is, <laughs> is that like they're, they're perfectly serviceable illustrations they're 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 very technically well executed and this is not a knock on romance novels this is not a knock on the most you know economically powerful genre you know out there in the entire world um 
it's just a matter of signaling to the readership what they're expecting and what the fantasy readership was looking for in 1996 was not semi-Fabio. I mean, and, yeah. and it was it was close. That's the thing. It's so close. You know, the, the difference between fantasy art and romance art in terms of a book cover can be very slight. You know, like take the, the exact same picture, um, you know, harden the edges a bit, put some fire in the background, you got a fantasy novel. Soften the edges and add a sunset, you got a romance novel. It, it, it can be that close. And they just screwed it up by just that much. So the novel was essentially homeless from the get-go. Um, and it's, it's, it's just such a pity and a shame because they're so damn good. Um, and, and that, like, that's the story of everything Matt has written. Um, so, so yeah, so that's one of the things that also didn't help. Uh, it was, it was the right novel in the wrong time. Um, and you know, marketing, marketing is a crapshoot, even with, uh, something that, that, you know, where, where you understand what niche it is and you have people, you know, hungrily expecting it when you're selling an unknown entity. Um, it, it's a thankless task. You know, I, I don't mean to slam the people who, who tried to market the book and who designed it. I mean, they, they tried, but Matt just did not, he didn't come up boxcars when he was rolling those dice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, let's get back in between the covers, gentlemen, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, talk talk about the text. Uh, so I'm going to violently swing our way back uh, into talking about the text of this book. Oh, you want to talk about the thing you brought me on the podcast to talk about, huh? <laughs> <laughs> going to make me stay I'm on topic of, like an animal. This, this is, you know what this is? Um, this is the quest to save Palace Rill, where it's like, hey, look, if you got the time, talk about the book a little bit. Um, but, but our, but our quest thus far has been highly successful, I think, uh, regardless. (laughs) So, okay. So I, I want to get into what you've been saying about how good a writer he is. There are, I, I I must've highlighted 20 different passages that, that don't necessarily come at pivotal moments where it's just, you know, dang, that's a really good paragraph. So let me give you guys an example. Drew, I, I don't know if you have any highlighted that you want to bring out or, or Scott, if you do, but uh, what if you do? I'll let you just pick one. Okay, I'll give you mine first. Uh, and that is, oh, shoot. I didn't actually, oh, I got I to gotta pull it up here. I wrote down a different one, but I forgot to write down this one. Um, so let me, uh, let me pull it up here. Uh, okay. Oh, that's right. It's at the beginning of beginning of day six. So we're like 500 pages into the book at this point. Uh, and this is one of those omniscient narrator moments. Uh, and he writes, Ankana, that's the city we're in. Ankana went to bed with terror and disbelief, but the disbelief fled during the night. At dawn, only terror remained. Slow terror, the kind that feels like icy teeth chewing on your bones. This is in the middle of the book. Again, not not like a super pivotal moment or something. And he's got these peppered throughout where he'll just drop a paragraph on you that makes you go like, it's it feels so easy. Like he, this feels effortless, this writing, right? But he's so, so good at, at evoking, you know, whatever feeling he's trying to bring out with just a few words. Uh, Drew, what you got? So I, I want to just talk about the very opening of the book in, in the prologue and how he, again, effortlessly uses his character's voice to weave humor in at, at 
any opportunity. And you know, where this is the third paragraph of the book. The bedchamber of Prince Regent Toa Felathon is really pretty restrained when you consider that the guy in the bed there rules the second largest empire on Overworld. The bed itself is a modest eight poster, only half an acre or so. Like it's <laughs> the the juxtaposition of what he's actually describing, what you're picturing in your head, and Kane's sarcasm is just it's so seamless. And it's all throughout the book. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah like that, I said, there are a million others. Scott, go ahead. That um that, that I mean that opening scene, you know, with Kane's escape from that whole situation, I mean, there's a line that is, has stuck with me for, you know, twenty-two years and counting now. And, you know, forgive me, I, I will breach the, the, the swearing wall for, for one one last one last fling. Um, but it, it's it's the little bit where uh, he, he he narrates something to the effect of you know a sword in your stomach really plays fuck ass with your ability to cast spells and it's just it's it's that <laughs> it, it's it's uh, you know he he makes such use of, of that that classic sort of you know um, trenchant noir narration you know the city has uh, I've, the city is afraid of me I've seen its face you know. Ankana <laughs> sleeps now, but I walk the pavement, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, he'll like take the piss out of himself for talking like that as well and wink at the audience. And the, the interesting thing is, is that that is not just him inserting a good laugh line, inserting a good characterization line, but it also speaks directly to how Harry Seldon fights, to how he handles situations. Like, uh oh, I got a hallway full of guys with swords, and oh, here comes a guy who's going to cast a spell. Well, you know, he could toast me in a second, but it's very difficult to cast spells when someone has kicked you in the balls. And it, it, it just, <laughs> it speaks to the efficiency of this dude who is, you know, he's, he's a, you know, 20 years hardened, hardcore, earth-trained street fighter from, you know, the, the, the mean back alleys of Chicago, um, you know, who responds with instant violence and efficient violence and doesn't think about it or over-dramatize it. You know, someone else draws their sword and says, you know, ah, Kane, I have you. And, you know, an instant later, they're crumpled <laughs> screaming because Kane kicked him in the balls. He doesn't have time to play with them. He's got to get on with it. And he, um, Indiana Jones with a pistol, right? It's yeah, it, it's it's beautiful. But um, I, I also I'm, I'm very, very fond of uh, the scene where where uh, Malkoth takes him into his uh, his studio where, you know, Malkoth is, oh. is sculpting. And they, they, they have a conversation that is, that is you know, Malkoth telling Cain to, you know, watch your steps, son. Um, and, he's, you know, he's, he's making a gigantic sculpture that is incorporating uh, the shapes uh, and, and the substance of uh, l smaller sculptures of people from around Ankana. And he, he's, he's got a sculpture, uh, he's got Cain's head right there. And he asks Cain, you know, where do you think you could fit into the larger picture? And, you know, Kane, genuinely impressed by the artwork, says, I, I wouldn't presume. And Malkoth nods and, and squishes the Kane head and says, so be it. No more than I expected. And, and Kane shakes his head and says, you are not subtle. And it's, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's a marvelous scene because you, 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 this is, Matt is, uh, is al almost unique in my experience in absolutely having his cake and eating it too, and deconstructing the cake while <laughs> celebrating the cake. Like there's, there's just no, this is, if I could emulate something that he does with perfection, that's what I would choose to do. Um, oh. because you, you, you have one of these classic, like, ah, good guy meets the bad guy and the bad guy gives a melodramatic speech 
um, except it's a very thoughtful melodramatic speech. And the good guy is kind of swept up in it. And even when he's undercutting it, um, he's saying, I, I get the point. Uh, I, I do understand. Um, and it's it just like that pervades the whole thing. You know, I mean, Matt, uh, in an interview ages ago, I think he said something like, this novel is a meditation on violence and our reaction to violence that is itself wall-to-wall violence. Like, like I think that's the yeah. key to Matt's aesthetic, to his philosophical explorations, is he doesn't set himself apart as some cold and distant judge looking down upon us for enjoying this stuff. He enjoys it too. I mean, I, I tried to incorporate that into, into my own work. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, there, there, there are what I, what I hope are critiques of the concept of revenge and what it brings you in the lies of Locke, the Mora. There's a very flawed attempt to critique the concept of torture. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, you know, I will not deny that I absolutely reveled in all of the jumping around, swinging, swashbuckling, stabbing, you know, cloaks flying, running across the rooftop stuff. And and Matt has that sense of joy with his tools and with his canvas, even while he is deconstructing them. And I think that that, that is just like, that is the ideal place to be, is to yeah. play with these toys, but be in a state of constant awareness or striving for awareness of where they come from, how they fit together and what they imply about all of us. So I, I I don't want to go into too much detail here because obviously we're talking about heroes die in specific, but Kane black knife, the third book Mm -hmm. is exactly what you're saying. The first time I read it, I, I put the book down thinking this was a love letter from the author to his main character. But then when you think about it more and you realize how much of that book was deconstructing Kane as a character and it's Hari himself deconstructing Kane as a character. And, and you realize just how, how nicely those puzzle pieces fit together. Um, Like from a writing perspective, I was blown away by the book. I know a lot of, a lot of people think that, you know, the, the last two books aren't as good. Um, and but for me, when I'm looking at them from the writer's perspective and and trying to take ideas and and take themes and things to apply to my own writing, I'm blown away by what he did in Kane Black Knife. Mm-hmm. Well, they're they're you know they're 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 quieter meditations on what has gone before. You know, you 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 basically you he blows the world up, um, you know, physically and thematically <laughs> in in Blade of Tyshell. You know, Blade of Tyshell is the gigantic devastating everything changes book and you know you you can only go so far in attempting to write a bigger explosion book you know you 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 can only build to a certain level of ridiculousness so he he did the opposite you know he he wrote he wrote oh, a, a well, better if, if the first two books are are breaking bad the death he, star could always just be a planet you know you, you, yeah right? you you build a bigger and bigger death star until the entire <laughs> galaxy is a death star congratulations you're living in it already um, no, but he, he, uh, he, he wrote, uh, a better call Saul for his breaking bad, you know, and, and recognize that like, you've gone so far in this direction, you know, you, you, you go explore something else if you want what you've already written to retain its meaning. Right. And, and you go to the subtitles of the books where heroes die is subtitled act of violence and blade of yes. Tyshell is act of war. And then you get to Cain Blackknife and Cain's Law, and they are the two parts of the act of atonement. Yes. And it's a dramatic tone shift. Mm-hmm. 
So we've only got a few more minutes left, you guys, and uh, <laughs> don't want to keep you too long, Scott. You've been very generous, generous with your time. But I do want to dig into one more aspect of this book, something that he does really well. We've talked about uh, the subtlety that he treats a lot of these things with. And there's one more piece of subtlety that I want to bring up, and that is this idea that we have sometimes of uh, the protagonist is not necessarily a hero. So <laughs> the question, let me just put it to you this way. Is Kane the good guy? And is Myelkoth the bad guy? Or is this a situation where we have a protagonist and an antagonist because of the way the story is set up, but these are not necessarily, like you're not, you're you're led to root against Myelkoth, but should you? You know, and vice versa with Kane, right? So I don't know. That let's I we hear what you guys have to say about that. So yeah, I mean oh sorry, go ahead, Drew. I was gonna say if if you're gonna make any kind of cut and dry attempt at categorizing characters, Palace Rill is the hero and Baron is the right. villain. Mm, yep. But with Kane and Myelkoth, I see them as two sides of the same coin. Where they, and, and this is why, uh, again, another reason why this book is so good is Milkoff has the same gravity that Kane has as a non-point of view character. And like that, that just makes their conflict and their attraction to each other so compelling. You, you, can't, you can't look at Milkoff as a villain when Kane in his own way, loves him. And you, and similarly, Milecoff in his own way loves Kane. But like, and Kane also detests himself and his part as a cog in this machine, right? That's the whole thing mm -hmm. that we get that Scott brought up, you know, at the end of the book where he's, are you not entertained? So yeah. he kind of, he hates himself as well. And he's just trying yeah. to inch toward daylight. It's, Thoughts uh, and feelings, Scott. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, one of the one of the fascinating things that that um, Matt does. I mean, you know, it, it seemed at the time that this this novel was, uh, you know, a, a little bit, um, I guess, ahead of the zeitgeist in in identifying um, some some of the the same problems that 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 afflict our society in the here and now. Um, and I got to say that, you know, 22 years on uh, from, you know, having experienced this book for the first time you know, or almost a quarter of a century now, um, I, this book is more relevant than it was when it was written. And, that, and that's incredibly frustrating. But it's 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 so interesting <laughs> that that basically this is a this is a, a, a novel about a secondary world. You know, basically, we discover a portal to fantasy land and. Nine times out of 10 in a fictional treatment of this, this would be, you know, a gateway to wonder. But what do we do with it? I mean, we, 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 we don't just go into it with a colonizer mindset. We colonize it for entertainment. We send agent provocateurs through portals over there to mess with the lives of the people who live in fantasy land because it looks like the fake fantasy lands we have in our fiction. Like there's, there's, you know, in, in an actual fantasy universe, like there's no such thing as adventurers as, as a profession. There's, there shouldn't be any such thing as an adventurer's guild. I mean, we have adventurers in our world. We call them mercenaries and sociopaths and bandits. Um, the, the, the whole, the, the, the notion of an adventurer, you know, someone who goes around in a world poking things with sticks and taking things out of tombs 
and, you know, uh, beating piles of gold and resources out of the wilderness, out of whatever forces stand against them, is an imposition upon the life of people in the overworld. So you've got these, pardon me as I, I cough for a moment. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm sure that added a, a great deal to the podcast. Um, flavor. <laughs> Um, so you, you, you've got these people being sent over as, as fun time saboteurs, essentially, you know, their, their job is to make sure that the people of overworld are never actually in charge of their own destinies, you know, politically or, or physically or magically. There's always some jackass, uh, running around in the background, setting off fireworks and stealing things for the amusement of an audience that lives across a dimensional barrier. Um, so, you know, Malkoff, you know, in a vacuum, I mean, yeah, he's a, he's an enlightened despot. Um, but I mean, he is despotic, but he's also dealing with an intrusion into his world that he, like, he's, he's trying to grasp the, the nature of it. He's trying to suss it out because, you know, the Acteri commit suicide if they're discovered. Um, but, you know, he's come to suspect, you know, there, there, there are people visiting from a parallel dimension and they're only here to blow things up and steal stuff. Like, I mean, he has yeah. a very legitimate grievance on behalf of the people who actually live in Overworld who would actually benefit from some of the order that he's trying to bring. But yeah, like I have the quote all... right here where he says, it's entertainment, Cain. They're worse than demons. Even the outside powers that prey upon men do so to feed, to sustain themselves upon our terror and despair. The Actiri do so to divert their idle hours just for yeah. fun. Yes. That is perfect. not evil. I don't know what is. Like, you're not even here to do basic colonialism. Like, you're not here to steal our wealth. You're not stealing gold, diamonds, uranium, whatever. You know, you, you have turned our world into a stage, um, you know, for, for the futuristic equivalent of the Disney Corporation. Um, you know, to, to, to produce these, you know, uh, you know, march along the Bodican and, and, you know, for the love of palace Rill, um, you know, and it's just, so it's just so many layers of the inappropriateness of the heroism that is being artificially generated for a profit. Um, so, you know, Malkoff has quite legitimate grievances in that respect, but like all tyrants in that model, you know, he himself chews through an awful lot of other people in building the edifice that he wants to build. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a historical truism amongst us that, you know, if you want to, you want to build something like a, a great highway or a great wall, you're going to do it over the bodies of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. That's also Malkoff. I mean, I, it, it is, as you say, it, it's a balancing act. Um, they, they, they both have a lot of valid points and they both come from equally screwed up contexts. And, and they, you know, they, they get shoved together like, you know, like fighting fish in a bowl to, uh, you know, to, to basically uh, settle it, whether they want to or not. Um, and yeah, and, and, and as you said, you know, the, the person who's actually trying to selflessly do good with the time that they have is Palace Rill. And yep. if there's, so with all this being said, if there's one word that I could use that in a in a book that, as you say, has viscera splattering all over the walls, uh, you know, in many different places. Um, nevertheless, the word that I that keeps coming to mind as I think about how would I describe this book is subtlety. Like he is a master of weaving in subtleties and you know making you reconsider what you thought you knew about a character a hundred pages ago. Well, it's completely different now, or you know, could be read completely differently. I don't know. He's 
incredibly skilled. I, I guess that that would be maybe my final thought for today as we're wrapping it up is, uh, dear Lord, I hope everybody who's listening to this read the book. Um, if you haven't yet, please go read the book. Um, you know, to tear the cover off if you have to, whatever. I don't care. Yeah, but if just you read, haven't read, read the, book. the book, we we know who you are. We will find you. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, really, really good. Uh, Scott, I really appreciate you choosing this one. I know Drew appreciates that because uh, it made me read it. So, yeah, no, very, very much. Yeah, uh, I, I, when you, you guys sent me the invite, my eyes bugged out because I'm like, oh, God, you know, wh- wh- which of the 38,000, you know, deeply formative <laughs> things am I going to, you know, am I going to Cage Baker, Vonda McIntyre, um, you know, uh, Jack Vance, Ray Feist. Fritz Leiber, you know, who, so I guess, you know, out of loyalty and out of the hope that, you know, maybe just maybe we can continue to drag this, this richly deserving person into a bigger spotlight. That's why Mm -hmm. I chose Heroes Die. Yeah, it's, it's really great. And we thank you for joining us. Scott, what do you got coming up? Uh, What do you want people to know about? Is there anything uh, that you want to get out there? Well, by the time this goes live, um, it should be safely known uh, amongst the general public um, that I have handed something in and, uh, that there is going to be new gentleman bastards material. Um, now there is a, a caveat here. Um, and I, I talk about this at length. Like I, I, I mentioned that I'd, uh, recently done, uh, Brian McClellan's, um, page break podcast. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I don't mean to like insert, uh, you know, a, uh, uh he, he paid me $5 to go on your podcast and remind no, I mean, you. We're literally having him on tomorrow. So oh, okay, cool. sweet, yeah. awesome. Okay, so, um, so I go in depth into the, the situation on that, which should be available, you know, right around the time that this goes live, maybe a week or, or after or a week before. But um, I, in, in which I, I explain to the best of my ability, like what's my issue, what's holding me back, what do I mean when I say that I have anxiety and panic attacks, what have I been doing to try to deal with them, mm. um. And ba- basically, the, the the TLDR version is uh, that I've been. Um, I mean, experimenting sounds like such a a, a, a friggin' um, light-hearted way of approaching it. Like, yeah, I've been experimenting with a new drug, but no, I've I, I've been on a new pharmaceutical regimen uh, specifically to deal with the panic attacks that that prevent me from from handing in my work and from showing it to people, um, and. I've been in the situation where it's like, it's working. I'm, I'm, I'm about to turn a corner and it, it's, it's never, it's never worked. I mean, the last, the last like 10 years have been very difficult. Um, and everything that has come out for me in that time has been, you know, an incredibly painful, you know, process, uh, <laughs> that has tortured the people around me. But, uh, I appear to have something that works that has, that is, that has brought about a significant diminishment of my specific and my overall anxiety. And I started handing things in again and showing my work to people. So I have, for many years, owed uh, Subterranean Press uh, a number of uh, Loch Lamora novellas. I signed a contract for this mm-hmm. back in 2005, back before Lies was even published. Um, and these were the, the first of these was supposed to be titled The Mad Baron's Mechanical Attic, and the second was supposed to be titled um, uh, The Choir of Knives. But yeah. uh, it's 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 a trilogy. The, the these these things exist. Um, I've handed in the first novella in this sequence, except it's called Untitled Lynch Number One, and we're trying to figure out what the proper title is for it. So, The Mad Baron's Mechanical Attic is novella number two, 
and uh, Choir of Knives is novella number three. But I've given Subterranean Press one of these, and uh, hopefully more of them. And it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't a, a panic attack, stricken, miserable, clawing at the walls experience. I, I was able to actually do this like a semi-functional human being. It wasn't easy, but it worked. Nice. And uh, th- so this means that, that I have a gigantic backlog of material. I've got other novellas. I've got short stories. I've got a fourth novel in the Gentleman Bastard sequence. If I'm functional again, then all of this stuff can actually get handed in and we can we can proceed with the making of, of Locke and John adventures, for the love of God. So, so yes, I, I wish I had a snappy title. I, I think that the... Uh, the, I, I believe that these three novellas, since they comprise a bridge narrative between uh, the Republic of Thieves and the Thorn of Emberlane, are going to be called collectively the Road to Emberlane. Um, oh, nice. Okay. Which is which is either the perfect title or too obvious well, to be used. Like on I, I'm, the nose. I yeah, it's 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 either great or it's so on the nose we can't use it. I'm wait I'm waiting to hear back from my editors and my agent and so on and so forth. And then that's why we're in limbo with talking about this at the moment because I've got several publishers and my agent and, and just a lot of things to coordinate in terms of talking mm-hmm. about this uh, in the open, just to make sure that everybody's happy and everyone understands what, you know, what our publication schedule is going to be. But having done this, you know, hopefully now I can, I can move on in relatively short order um, and maybe get the Locke and John short stories that I've been working on out and get the uh, Thorn of Emberlane, uh, you know, out and, uh, you know, d- do what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, this whole, this whole writing thing. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a productivity block. I don't have writer's block. I, 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 I have severe uh, anxiety issues, um, which, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of basking in the surreal feeling of, you know, have we done it? Have we maybe just maybe reached a point where that's getting well, mitigated? Um, yeah. And it, it would be delightful if that's true. So yeah, like I like I said on uh, McClellan's podcast, I didn't realize this. Um, until I was talking about it, but it's like, so, so yeah, I, Sanderson apparently is, uh, Brandon is, is, is cutting edge. He's got four surprise novellas. I can, I can only give you three. I've only got three. That's a, that's as far as I go this year, but, um, he, he's got the exact opposite problem where he has anxiety and panic attacks. If he doesn't turn in a novel approximately every time he takes a crap, right. He's like, it, Here's another one. Here's another one. Right. And and my my heart bleeds for you, Brandon. <laughs> bleeds. No. It, uh, it would be it would be easier to scoff if he wasn't such a nice guy. But no. So that's like so that's the news that I'm currently sitting on that I hope will be completely public by the time this uh, this goes live. Well, you've made a lot of people very happy. I'm sure most of the people listening to this will have seen that news already if that came out uh, publicly a few days ago. But if you hadn't heard it. Uh, well, then now you have, and I'm sure a lot of people are very, very happy to hear that. I know I am. Uh, that's yeah, really cool. Really looking forward to it. Um, so Scott, thank you again. Uh, people can hear more about what you're just talking about with Brian McClellan's podcast. What, what's it called? The title of his podcast is page break, um, page, page break. That's right. So yeah, people can go listen to your episode on page break. Drew, obviously everybody can go listen to you on inking out loud. Uh, they probably already do. They've heard me say that what eighteen times now that we've had you on the show. Maybe. Well, well, the big so, announcement in Inking Out Loud Land is that mm. very shortly here, uh, by the time this episode comes out, very shortly we will be starting into the Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe. So oh, nice! I know a okay. lot of people are excited about that one. Yep. 
All right. So yeah, lots of big deal stuff going on. Uh, for everybody else, again, please go to thelegendarium.com and uh, you know check out Patreon. Uh, Scott has been generous enough to generous enough to be a patron for a while. We appreciate that. Everybody else should be just like Scott. I own you, Craig. Uh, I own you. <laughs> if only that weren't we, as true as it we is. we weave a, a very tangled web here. That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks to both of you for uh, your generous time. Uh, let's get back to your days. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. Hey, thank we you. Will... This has been loads of fun. Uh, I hope. Good, good. I hope anything I said made any sense whatsoever. I yeah, there was too much of it. That's why I, I ended up letting you go for so long because I was like, oh, I'm I sorry. Can't I'm, I'm a very great. chatty Kathy. Once you you let me off the leash there, so <laughs> sorry. Who knows? Maybe we should do another Heroes Die discussion uh, more textually based at some point. But this was fascinating stuff. So. A, a Heroes Die discussion where we actually discuss Heroes Die? I, mean, I feel like we kind of got into it, but no. I, I, I had a lot of fun, so thank you. Good. All right. Well, I'll see you guys later. Thanks, Craig. <laughs>